Well, some of you uh, may be thinking at this point, boy, that was quick. We didn't sing much today. We're uh, we're uh, we're maybe it's going to be a long, long sermon. Well, uh, hopefully it won't be that long. Um, we, we do things like this intentionally when we come to the Lord's table together. We celebrate communion. And one of the things we intentionally try to do is we we teach up for up front and then we allow the Lord's Supper to be a response from what we learn in the word. And that's what we're going to do today. Uh, I want, if you will, to take your copy of God's word and open to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We'll take a break this morning from walking through Mark together because I want to just take this time. I don't do this every time we do the Lord's Supper. But this morning, I want us to really look at what we do when we do the Lord's Supper, because if we're honest, uh, for a lot of us, this is a little different. This is a little strange coming to a table and taking a small piece of bread and taking a, a very small cup of, of juice and drinking that together. And uh, I, I realized in looking to this that a lot of people, while those who've grown up in church understand probably what we do, there are several that have not and they don't really understand. And for, even for those of us who've grown up in church and have participated in the Lord's Supper a lot, it's good for us to have a reminder of exactly what we're doing in the midst of this. Um, I read this story. It's one of those kind of corny, cheesy illustrations. But there was once a, a boy and uh, he was going out as a part of a children's ministry and they were going out to nursing homes and they were taking elements of communion and they were administering or delivering those and taking those to the, the members of the nursing home. And they were making sure that those who were shut ins or who no longer could come to the physical building, the gathering of the church could also participate in the life of the church. And so this children's group was there at the at the home and they went into one particular room and the man in the room was fast asleep, sitting up in his chair, fast asleep. And they were disappointed. They thought, how are we going to give communion to him? He, he's going to miss out. And they tried to wake him, but he was not going to wake up. He was snoring soundly. And uh, But one of the boys pointed out, you know, as a lot of 11-year-olds would, he said, uh, you know, his, his mouth is open. <laughs> and they proceeded and they took the bread and they all kind of, on a dare, took it and they, they took the bread and they took a tiny piece and they placed it in his mouth and they took the, the little cup and they poured it in. And sure enough, the man swallowed and he never woke up. And I wonder for so many of us. While we may not be physically asleep, it's the same way. We walk through this ceremony and we never wake up to what we're really doing here. And that's what I want us to look at this morning is I want us to look at what we do when we come to the Lord's table. Let's look at Matthew chapter 26 together, beginning in verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Let's pray together. God, I pray that, Lord, as we look at this ordinance 
one of the two ordinances that you have ordained for the church. God, I pray that we would gain a fresh or possibly even a new understanding of what we do here. God, I pray that it would be more than going through the motions, but God, that we would truly wake up to what it is that is symbolized in this ceremony. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an overarching definition of what we do in the Lord's Supper. This is going to guide the the message for this, this morning. In the Lord's Supper, we celebrate redeemed fellowship with God and redeemed fellowship with one another by remembering the cost and anticipating the future. And there's four things here that I want to show you that we do when we come to the Lord's table together. Number one, we celebrate redeemed fellowship with God. Look at the text. Verse 26, he says, the Bible says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. There is this sense here, there's a picture here of man being reunited or brought back to right relationship, right fellowship with God. And even though the atonement, the redemption has not taken place yet in in this particular part of the, the, the Bible, Jesus has not gone to the cross yet. Even though that's not happened yet, it is still a picture of what is to come. God and man reunited together in the way that they were originally intended to be. And some would say, what's the big deal? What's the big deal with Jesus and his disciples, him giving them bread and giving them the fruit of the vine? Well, the big deal is that if we were living in a Genesis 1 and 2 world, this wouldn't be that big a deal. But we're no longer living in a Genesis 1 and 2 world. We live in a Genesis 3 world. We live in a world where no longer are we in right fellowship with God. Adam and Eve had been placed in the garden and they had been given an abundance of food. And God had said, you may eat of anything that you wish except for this one particular fruit off of this one particular tree. Instead, they chose to rebel and they chose to reject what he had said and they ordered off of another menu. They ordered off the menu of their own choosing and the consequence was that they were kicked out. They were removed from his table. You see, up until that point, there was no sin. There was no separation between them and God. And so therefore, every meal that they ate in the garden was in right, complete fellowship with God. But then all of a sudden, them choosing to go their own way, rejecting his will, choosing their own way, they are separated and removed from God's table forever. They're separated. Physical death, spiritual death comes. Now, they're removed from this table, but throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God occasionally lets his children, their children, come back to the table. One particular instance, every single year, the Bible says that when they brought in the fruit of the crop or the harvest, that they would tithe on that. And one of the things that would happen when they would tithe is that they would get together and they would eat together. It was a tithe party. They would have this party in the presence of God. And God says, even though you're removed from my presence, I want every year for you to come back in and eat together with me. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23, accounts this for us. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, 
of your wine and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, and that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. God allows them, Adam and Eve, their children, to occasionally, even though they have chosen their own way and been removed from his table, once a year he allowed them to come back and to eat in his presence. But this meal was only to point out, to remind them of what they couldn't have. Every year they would come to this table and they would, they would eat and then they would be removed from the table once again. Not so with the Lord's Supper. When you and I come to the Lord's Supper, to the communion table, we are not reminded of what we cannot have. We don't celebrate this. We don't come to this table every seven, eight, nine weeks or so to remind ourselves that we need it again to be accepted again before God. We come to this table and we remember that it is not necessary. It is a privilege. Because we have right fellowship with God. This is not a reminder of what we don't have. It is a reminder of what we do have. We have right fellowship with God. Imagine. Imagine having to live outside of a kitchen that bakes the most wonderful bread. But never being able to eat that bread. Having to smell it all day long, but never being able to eat it. And that's what it was for so long for them. Today, we come to this table and I want to just instruct you and remind you as your pastor that we come to this table and we come not because we earn anything through it, but because everything we need has been earned. And we come and we remember just what God has done. We also celebrate redeemed fellowship with one another. We are not just in right relationship with God, but we are in right relationship with one another. In 26 and 27, there are several different parts of the text that I want to point out to you. As they were eating, he gave it to the disciples, plural. He gave it to them, plural. He instructs them, drink of it, all of you. When we come to the table, we demonstrate our unity in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. Now, as I thought about this, I thought in a day of seemingly complete and utter selfishness, I was watching the news the other day and they were talking about how much would would the economy bring in this year in the Christmas season? How much would be spent on Christmas gifts? And there was a small just element of the report that said on a positive note. Self-gifting will be up this year. I thought, wow, self-gifting will be up this year. The average person, I think they said, would spend between $100 and $150 on themselves this year. Well, that's nice. But isn't that a commentary on where we are? In society, we we are constantly thinking of one another or, or of ourselves over one another. We don't think of others like we should, like we do ourselves. I thought about this when we come to the Lord's table. This is a picture of the fact that we have been brought together in Christ, that we come together to prefer one another over and above ourselves in a day of seemingly complete and utter selfishness in the world around us. What speaks louder than us coming to the table together from all walks of life? All of us. I mean, think about it. We're from different ages, different Colors, different nationalities from different parts of the world. 
We some of us grew up in church. Some of us different didn't. Some of us grew up poor. Some of us grew up in middle class or even wealthy homes. We grew up all sorts of different ways. But when we come together as a church who outside of this, outside of Christ, we probably would not be hanging out together. When we come together, the world sees a picture that there is something unique here that God, through his son Christ, has done a work that has brought these people together. We love one another. Jesus, the same Jesus who here hands them this bread and hands them the cup. Also was the one who said, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. That's why we don't push each other around the table. Two or three of you have said to me in the last little bit that the last couple of times that we've celebrated communion together, it sort of felt rushed. And it felt as if we were sort of pushing one another through and and it was we were just sort of going through the motions. And I just want to remind you today as your pastor that we don't come to the table to get through the table. I want to remind you that in, in just a little bit, when we invite you to come, to stand up and come out into the aisles and come to the table, we don't want you to push the people in front of you through. We don't want you to rush them along or hurry them. I've instructed our deacons not to to be here saying, come, 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 come to this side. Hurry, come through this way. But instead, we come to the table and we take our time because it's a picture of what we have in relationship to our God and what we have in relationship to each other. We don't push one another around the table. We love one another. We prefer one another. We let others go Possibly before us, we we celebrate together. I invite you in just a minute. Some of you will come with your families. And there will be groups of families that will stand up all over this auditorium and they will walk down and they will stand around the table together. And possibly the father or someone in the group will take the cup and he will he will pass the plate and pass the, the, the tray of cups and he will serve his family and they will come and they will take communion together. And what a beautiful picture. It doesn't have to be just a family, though. It could be a Sunday school group or just a group of friends here. It could be maybe someone on the same row as you, and you invite them to come and take with you. What a better picture. What a, what, there could be no stronger picture to the world of the difference that Christ has made in our lives than that. We celebrate this morning redeemed fellowship with God. We celebrate redeemed fellowship with one another. We love God. God loves us in Christ. We love one another because Christ has loved us. But not only that, we remember the cost. And this is this is probably the bulk of it. When we come to the table. Jesus here in the text, he says it says that he took the bread and he broke the bread. He breaks the bread and, and it's intentional there. He breaks it because it's a picture of what it cost him. He takes the, the fruit of the vine, he takes the, the, the wine there, and he pours it out. And it's a picture of his blood being spilled for all who would place their faith in him one day. And this morning we come together and we come to remember what it cost him. And I remember just recently, a few months back, we looked at this and we looked specifically at what it cost, what redemption cost Jesus and I want to point some of these things out to you because we so quickly turn simply to the cross. But let me rem- remind you that for Jesus, his entire earthly life was sacrifice. 
This was this was the one who was always adored in heaven. Who was always sung about. Who was God himself, who never stopped being God, but was there in heaven. No need to come to humanity. God didn't create you and I because God was lonely. God didn't need us. Jesus stepped out of heaven and he came to this world and he endured certain things. Anybody want to go back to your childhood? Some of you would. But it's motivated out of things like, well, the aches and the pains and the, you know, whatever it might be. You'd like to go back and not have those. But do you remember puberty? Remember zits and things like that? Remember homework? Those are things that we don't like to think about in the context of, of Jesus. But when Jesus came, he came really fully, completely as a man. He took on humanity in every way. Jesus endured it all. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 4 that he was tempted. He was led into the wilderness by the Spirit and he was tempted. The Bible says that he encountered things like hunger and thirst. That he wept. He got close to people. And he watched them die because of sin. And it broke his heart. And for Jesus, he who was always God, that there was never a time when he didn't exist that for him to come to this world and live 33 years on this planet in and of itself was sacrifice. And so this morning, particularly when you take up that bread, I want you to, to think about the fact that he took on flesh for you. That's what Christmas is all about. That God himself became a man. Not only was there the, the the pain of just being a man. But there was also the pain of the cross. And we don't want to pass by that. The cross was probably the most cruel, torturous thing, uh, way to, to execute someone ever devised. Wayne Grudem points it out like this. He, he sums it up this way. When someone went to the cross, when the criminal's arms were outstretched and fastened by nails to the cross, he had to support most of the weight of his body with his arms. The chest cavity would be pulled upward and outward, making it difficult to exhale in order to be able to draw a fresh breath. But when the victim's longing for oxygen became unbearable, he would have to push himself up with his feet, thus giving more natural support to the weight of his body, releasing some of the weight from his arms. And enabling his chest cavity to contract more normally. By pushing himself upward in this way, the criminal could fend off suffocation. But it was extremely painful because it required putting the body's weight on the nails that were holding the feet. And bending the the elbows and pulling upward on the nails driven through the wrists. The criminal's back, which had been torn open repeatedly by a previous flogging, would scrape against the wooden cross with each breath. Thus, Seneca, first century A.D., spoke of a crucified man's drawing the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony. We don't want to sweep by that. It's It's not the main pain of redemption, but there was obvious pain that Christ went through. Christ suffocated for you and I on that cross. He didn't bleed out. He wasn't... He wasn't killed in a quick or in an instant manner. He died slowly for you and I. He was beaten for you and I. He was spit upon for you and I. 
The crown of thorns was pressed into his flesh around his, around his head for you and I. He was mocked and ridiculed for you and I. And he held there for hours that day on that cross, slowly pulling himself up and sinking down. Until finally he cried, it is finished. And he died a very agonizing death for you and I. We look back to that in this. When you take that cup this morning and you, you drink the cup, remember the cost of his life. We also look back to the, the pain of bearing sin. You know how it feels. For those of us who are Christians, we know exactly how it feels when we sin. We no longer sin and okay, we're okay with it. When you and I sin now as believers, we are ripped apart. David expressed it when he sinned with Bathsheba as if his bones were breaking. He felt sick. He couldn't get past it. And if you and I as fallen creatures feel that way, how must it have felt for Jesus, the perfect, sinless, holy one of God, God himself? How must it felt for him to take on sin on himself? Bearing sin for you and I. He placed sin on him who knew no sin. He was abandoned. Jesus was abandoned. He was abandoned by his disciples, by those disciples that were around him. He asked them to watch and pray, only to watch them flee when the army came into the garden and arrested him. He was abandoned on the cross. He screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reality is the father turned his back on the son because the father is too holy to look upon sin. Jesus went through it alone for you and for me. Probably the worst pain of all, though, was not the physical pain or even the abandonment, but the worst pain of all of the cross probably was bearing the wrath of God. All of the hatred. For all of the sin. That had ever been committed or would ever be committed. God being holy, altogether holy, altogether separate. All of the hatred, the holy hatred that was stored up was in that moment poured out on the sun. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against uh, against sin. Which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. He became for us the sacrifice that bears all of the wrath of God, making him favorable to us. Jesus, we look today at his sacrifice. We remember the cost. It cost him greatly. We look back to that. So don't come to the table this morning and treat this thing as if it is just trivial. We are not saying this morning that the actual bread or the actual juice in the cups is the actual body and blood of Christ. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that it does represent what God has done to redeem us to himself. Don't come in a trivial way. Don't forget to look back at what it cost him. And then also when we come to the table, we come and we remember or we remember the cost, but we also look forward. We anticipate the future. 
Jesus in verse 29 says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom. My father's kingdom. It speaks of this coming messianic banquet. It speaks of the marriage supper of the lamb. There's coming a day where there will be no more separation. Isn't that good? Today we come to this table and we, while we can do this, and we can do it wholeheartedly, knowing that we are completely restored in relationship with God. No separation there except physical. We come today and we, we celebrate the fact that we are redeemed and we are right in relationship with one another, except we still live in this fallen world. There's coming a day when we will sit at the table with our God. We will look across at Him And we will eat again with him just as Adam and Eve will once ate in his presence freely, but were removed from his table. One day we will be invited into the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will sit down with our God. And we will eat with him. So today when we come to this table, we look forward to that. And it should be a celebration. It's somber as we look back, but it is celebratory as we look forward. We look to the present. This table is a picture of the coming feast in the presence of our God and King. Try not to celebrate that. I want to invite us in just a minute to come and partake of the Lord's table. And all that I've instructed you today is what we will do. We will celebrate the fact that in Christ, those who have turned from their sins and trusted Christ alone, this table is open for you. We, we invite you to come and take this table because you have been brought into right relationship with your God. We invite those of you who are members of this church because we are committed to one another in that relationship. We're committed to, to holding one another accountable pushing each other toward Christ. And we come together and we gather around this table for that very reason, to love one another and prefer one another. As you take the cup this morning, look back to what it cost Christ and celebrate and look forward to what is coming because of Christ. Let me give you just a few instructions before we start. As Those of you who have been here, we've been doing it this way for quite a while, but if you're new, you can come at any moment whenever Ethan comes and leads us. You can stand and you can come as a family or you can come as an individual. You can come as a Bible study group or with people on your row or whatever the case may be. You can come and you can take of the Lord's Supper today. I would instruct you, as I said just a minute ago, don't push one another. Don't rush through it. Take your time. Don't don't use the time standing in the aisles. I say this every time. Try not to line up in the aisle, but it always kind of happens because as you think no one's there and you get up to come, someone else is thinking the same thing and you wind up in the aisle together. But I would I would encourage you, don't use that time to catch up on the ball game. It's, it's not it's not the time to talk about Burns and Gaffney or Clemson and Virginia Tech or any of those things. It's the time for us to think about all that that I just covered with you. To look back and to look forward. To celebrate God and to celebrate one another. Treat it as a sovereign time. And then when we go through this line together, when we go through the table together, we're going to continue to sing. 
There'll be plenty of time. If, if you notice in your, in your order of service, there's plenty of songs there that we're going to sing together. As you come through and go back to your seats or as you wait and then come through, participate in the, in the singing. The singing is meant to lead you, to give you an expression of worship. And then at the end, we'll close out together with a song together. Uh, the Bible says there in Matthew 26 and verse 30, it says that after they took the cup and took the bread together, that they sang a hymn together and they went out. And that's what we'll do today. We'll sing together. We'll celebrate what God has done. I'll be here. I'll be here at, uh, during most of the time. There may be someone here today who you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You've never trusted him. You, you, you're, you really don't have a place at the table because you've never come to him. Well, if that's you today and you realize you, your sin separates you from him and you're in the place of Adam and Eve removed from the table, I'll be here and I would love to receive you and point you toward Christ, lead you into a saving relationship with him. Today, the invitation is open. If this is the church where God is leading you and you want to join and lock arms with this church, I'll be here for that. If you need special prayer, just need to talk with your pastor, I'll be here at the front. But treat this time, I would say, as an opportunity to meet with your God. The Bible says that God meets with us in a special way when we are gathered together in worship. Just don't trivialize that. Let's celebrate that together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, because you have first loved us. God, thank you that you have brought us to the table, that we've been invited back to the table. We had no way back to the table on, on our own. But God, you stepped out of heaven. You stepped out into the cold. You stepped away from the privileged position so that we might be brought near. And God, this morning, where we say thank you for that. God, I pray that this would be a wonderful time where we, as the faith family here at Abner Creek, we come together. God, we remember what it cost you and we look forward to what is coming. God, would you be glorified? Do whatever you want to do in this time. Lord, we beg you, be merciful and gracious. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.